You are listening to Episode 7 of Ravenwood, a Tanith Fairport adventure, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 12. A Cheeky Bird Tanith found morning long before the sun did. She woke suddenly, her heart in her throat, sure that somebody was in the hut with her. Her hand slipped to the hilt of her belt knife where it rested under the edge of her bedroll. Habits formed from sleeping wild hadn't been broken by sleeping under a roof for a few nights. Her eyes raked the shadows. There wasn't anyone there. The faint glow from the banked coals in the fireplace gave sufficient light for her to make out every corner in the hut well enough to know nobody hid in the shadows. She took two deep breaths and tried to convince herself that it was too early to rise, but failed to calm the pounding in her chest. After a few moments of lying with her eyes closed and her pulse racing, she gave up and crawled out of her bedroll. Her stockings offered her feet some protection from the cold earth until she stepped onto the hearthstone, which was actually still a little warm to the touch and not as icy cold as she'd braced herself for. She plucked a few smaller pieces of wood from the box and proceeded to stoke up the fire. While it was working up some heat, she returned to her bedroll and dug out her outer clothing, slipping on her warm tunic but leaving her pants off until she had enough warm water for tea and to clean herself up a bit. She sighed as she realized that she really needed to take time to wash out some small clothes at least. She returned to the hearth and added another stick to the growing blaze there, pushing the tea kettle closer and considering her dwindling stock of tea and oatmeal. The routine of fire and warmth soothed her jangled nerves, and she slipped into the simple habit of mourning. After dealing with the mundane matters of hygiene and breakfast, she slipped out into the dawn, in spite of having been up for over an hour, the sky was nearly dark, with only the translucent scale of morning to brighten the east and wash the dimmest of the stars out of half the sky. The morning air had the cleanest bite of the day, and she took several lungfuls, letting each one out slowly before taking the next. It wasn't cold enough to see her breath, but she could tell that day was not far off. She stood there, listening. She wasn't sure what she was listening for, or perhaps listening to, the trees in the surrounding forest whispered amongst themselves in the last of the night's breeze and seemed to catch her listening to them. They hushed as if they'd been talking about her when she entered the room. She smiled at the idea as if she were important enough for the very trees to talk about. The humorous thought did give rise to an idea that was more serious. Twice in two days she'd prayed to the guardians and the all-mother for protections and boons, first giving thanks for the willow bark, but later asking for help in what might have been a dire time. Something in her made her walk to the clearing behind her hut and thank each of the guardians in turn for their assistance in her time of trial. She closed her circle with a simple thank you to the All-Mother and the All-Father. She felt better once she'd finished, and she stood there for a few minutes, savoring the quiet, enjoying the calm, and taking strength from the fertile earth beneath her feet. She stood there long enough that she heard Thomas slip out of his hut and head off up the track toward the quarry, no doubt thinking to get ahead of the workmen and on with his day's hunt. She heard Frank and William chatting softly as they met on the path to the barn, each heading up to care for the animals entrusted to them. In spite of the chaos and danger of the day before, she felt at peace. She'd been on the road long enough to know that nobody was really safe with the wild things loose in the world, but a little judicious planning and attention to detail could help. She sauntered around to the front of the hut and crossed the dewy grass to examine the scratchings on the ground and the sticks they'd placed to mark the corners of the new inn. As the morning sun clawed through the trees, she smiled at the placements and squinted her eyes a bit to try to envision the building as it might appear. If they were right in their estimates, the building might well appear, at least in frame, within a relatively few weeks. 
Frank and William had both agreed that foundation framing and roof were entirely feasible before the snow closed in for the winter. She paced off the length and smiled when she came to where Amber had drawn the outlines of her new kitchen by scraping the dirt with a branch in the near dark. It wobbled a bit, but it was a good-sized area. It would provide them with plenty of room to start with and offered space behind for growth. Tanith smiled. Amber may have been opposed to being the innkeeper at first, but as she warmed to the idea, her natural talents proved the obviousness of the solution. She heard the jingling of harness and the pounding of hooves coming along the pike from the south. The sun was barely into the trees, still throwing ribbons of light between the trunks and lighting the sky with a morning display. A messenger wearing the uniform of the king's own pounded along and sped past the village without looking in. Tanith had been watching the pattern of messengers on the pike long enough to know that in a day or so, another of the king's own would come riding in the other direction. She admired the layout of what would become the new inn for a few more moments, then turned to walk back to her hut and the chores that awaited her there. Her mind was caught up in the logistical problem of how and where to resupply her dwindling store of tea and oatmeal. While there was tea in the village, it wasn't the same, and oatmeal was all but unheard of among them. There was also the problem of winter clothing. She'd planned on shifting her wardrobe when she got to Overton, swapping her lighter sweaters and jacket for something a bit more substantial for the coming winter in the Northlands. With time on her hands and some suitable fabric, she could certainly fashion her own. She made a mental note to ask Amber about it. She'd know how to make the arrangements. William and Bester came down the track from the barn, heading out for their day's labor. He smiled to see her standing in the morning light and raised a hand in greeting. When he got nearer, he spoke softly, his voice carrying clearly over the crunching of the ox cart's wheels. Good morning, Mum. You're up early. She smiled at him. Good morning yourself, William. I couldn't sleep, so I got up and had my breakfast. She fell in and walked beside him. So how are you? Now that you've had a night to sleep on it, what do you think of this? She swept a hand to indicate the scratchings on the ground. He gave a slow nod. I'm fine, Mum, and I think this is really a very good idea. His eyes swept the area as he walked along. Amber does too, now that she's had a chance to think about it. A glowing smile suffused his face. She'll be wonderful as the innkeeper. Tanith grinned. I think so, too. They were almost at the pike, and Tanith stepped off onto the verge to let Bester and the cart pass out onto the packed road. Have a good day, William. Blessed be. She raised her hand in a wave. William smiled. Thank you, Mum. You, too. Try not to have any more excitement today, all right? She laughed in response. I'll do my best. William steered Bester northward and was soon lost to view. Tanith turned to retrace her steps. The chilly morning was giving way to the sun's warmth, but she thought another cup of tea would taste good. A flash of movement drew her attention, and she looked up to see the raven settling onto the ridgepole of her roof once more. The bird fluffed its feathers and then sleeked them back, seeming to ignore her presence below. It rolled its head as if settling skull to spine and then shifted its head from left to right as if showing off the heavy bill and profile, first on one side and then on the other. Tanith realized with a bit of a shock that it was actually looking at her, first one eye and then the other. The liquid gold of the bird's eye seemed to almost glow against the black feathers and some trick of the morning had a bolt of sunlight shining almost horizontally through the trees and reflecting off the glossy blackness. Well, aren't you a cheeky thing? Tanis' immediate sense of surprise subsided, and she spoke to the bird without really thinking about it. The raven gave a soft caw as if in answer. 
Tanith tried to decide if her odd dream from the previous day had been real, and contemplated for a moment the idea that she'd actually been looking through the eyes of a raven. Perhaps this raven, as it soared above the pike, wings easily outpacing hooves. The whole idea was fantastical, yet there seemed no other explanation. She could have been dreaming it, wishful thinking driving the images in her exhausted brain into patterns of desire. After all, isn't that what dreams are? But why a raven? She said it aloud, if softly. The bird opened its bill and gave a series of short cackling sounds. Not exactly a birdie laugh, but certainly not the full-throated caw one expected to hear from a raven. She chuckled, at herself as much as at the antics of the bird, and resumed her steps toward the house. When she got closer, the bird flicked its tail, leaving a squirt of white droppings streaked across the roof as it jumped into the air and flapped heavily northward across the open land of the village and disappeared into the forest beyond. Tanis' mouth quirked into a sideways grin. Cheeky thing. From the forest, near where the bird had disappeared, she heard a raven's croaking caw. She stopped with her hand on the latch and looked over her shoulder, momentarily overcome by the memory of veiled comments from some of her teachers, comments about the birds of the air and the fish in the stream, comments that hinted that magic had been loose in the world before and that it might be returning, or perhaps had never left. She shook herself to try to toss off the incongruous ideas, but they just swirled in her mind, leaves lifted by a zephyr, swirled about and redeposited in new patterns, but not blown away. She sighed in exasperation at her own silliness and wondered if perhaps the change that was beginning to sweep her body was giving her odd things to think about to distract her from the deeper changes. The raven caught again as Tana slipped into the hut. Shaking her head, she poked up the fire and refilled her kettle from the bucket. It would be a few minutes before the water was hot enough for tea and the early waking caught up with her suddenly. The comfort of her bedroll called her and she stretched out on top of it to rest her eyes while the water came to a boil. Sleep drew her downward as soon as she stretched out and she was barely aware of hearing the raven call a third time as the black waves of sleep swept her away. A man lay flat on the ground, behind the bowl of a heavy oak. He faced away from her, head up and peering over the root at something in the clearing beyond. She was surprised to see he wore the same clothing as one of the boyos they'd run off the day before. Lying on the ground and facing away, she couldn't see his face, but her view shifted, swinging left and right in a pattern that looked familiar, but which she couldn't quite place. Her attention was drawn upwards along the man's line of sight. She could see him peering into a clearing with a collection of huts, and with a pang of alarm she recognized them, even from the unusual angle. She caught in alarm. The man rolled his head around to look at her. She recognized the face as the man who'd been knocked down and winded during the scuffle. He picked up a small twig and threw it at her. It fell short and bounced off several small branches. Still, take no chances, and with a final caw, she spread her wings and dropped off the limb to glide between the loosely spaced trees, putting distance between her and the watching man. Tanith woke with a pounding in her chest. Chapter 13 Skunk in the Woodpile A dream, just a dream. You're a paranoid old woman. Tanith kept telling herself that, but it didn't do anything for the pounding in her head. 
She made herself not tear the door open. She fought the urge to hair across the intervening space and confront the man, if he were actually there. She stirred her tea and took a sip, burning her tongue on the near-boiling liquid. She set the cup down on the table and drew a deep breath. She didn't dare close her eyes to concentrate, but she squinted them and blew the breath out. Focus, old fool. Focus. First was the village in danger again? She needed to find out if the Bravos had come back to worry them. The day was still young, and she knew Frank was about. Second, were these dreams? Visions sent by the All-Mother to help guide and protect her? Or was she just going mad? As she sat there on the small table in the half-light of early morning, she wasn't sure which of the two things alarmed her more, that they might be being watched by people who wish them harm, or that she may be going mad. Age did strange things to people sometimes. She'd seen plenty of examples over the many winters she'd sought out all the old herbalists and healers she could find. She sighed, considering that the price of wisdom sometimes appeared to be too dear. With her fear controlled, if not conquered, she needed action. She sipped the cooling tea, unwilling to waste the precious leaves by walking off with a cup half full. She stood from the table and slipped into her warm tunic. Her hat went on her head, and she took staff in hand. She released the latch on the back door of her hut and slipped out, closing it carefully behind her. She wondered if there was somebody on that side of the village as well, watching from the other direction, but she forced herself not to look at the tree line. With one step after another, focusing on the ground and not her steps, she sauntered as naturally as possible around the outside perimeter of huts until she was able to make a beeline for the barn. She found Frank rolling a barrow of muck out of the barn and onto the pile. He smiled to see her. "'Morning, Mom. You're up early.' too early, and I think we may have a problem. He parked the barrow and dusted his hands together, looking at her intently. What kind of problem, Mom? I think one of the men that was here yesterday has come back. I thought I saw someone peeking out from the trees opposite my cottage. He looked startled. Are you certain, Mom? She shook her head. No, actually I'm not. She smiled apologetically. It might have merely been a trick of the light. Was it just the one? I only saw the one, but who knows if the others are there as well, and I just didn't see them. He pursed his lips in thought and then fetched the hay fork from its hook by the stalls. Let's go see if you saw what you saw, shall we, Mum? Together they slipped out of the barn, working their way cautiously down the tree line on the south side of the village's clearing. Tanith hadn't been on this side before and spotted several patches of yarrow and wild carrot growing in the understory where the forest tried to regain the clearing. They walked quietly, keeping eyes and ears open. Tanith heard nothing but the normal sounds of morning forest. The zeep-zeep of a sparrow in the undergrowth sounded loud in her ears, and even the soft passage of wind through the treetops above carried clearly. She kept glancing northward, looking for the angle, the view she'd seen in her dream, trying to match the reality against her memory even as it slipped sideways in her mind each time she tried to recapture it. Frank offered no comment as they walked further and further, just kept his eyes sweeping the trees and undergrowth to their right. Tanith was about to give up on the vision when the scene snapped into focus. She stopped in her tracks. Her head twisted to the left. The angle on her hut matched the angle from her dream. Her breath caught in her throat. Frank fetched up his step and looked at her in concern. Did you see something, Mum? Tanith turned her head and looked straight into the woods in the opposite direction. Just behind the verge of undergrowth, a large oak lifted a canopy of leaves to the sky. Here. Frank peered cautiously into the brush and poked the hay fork ahead. 
Nothing stirred, so he stepped into the cover of the forest. Tanith followed and was relieved to find nobody there. She stepped carefully around Frank and walked further into the woods, glancing back periodically, looking for the tree where the raven had perched. She was still not sure if what she'd seen was a vision, a dream, or something else, and the uncertainty scraped her nerves raw. There were several likely candidates for perches, but she was unable to pick out one that she could point to and say with certainty. What are you looking for, Mum? Frank's voice was low, but drew her back to the reality. She turned to see him with the fork planted in the ground, and looking alternately at her and then around at the surrounding woods, unsure what he should be looking for, but obviously alarmed by her actions. Sorry. Her reply was likewise hushed. I was just looking to see if I could see anybody. I must have been mistaken. Well, Mom, there's nobody here now, for certain. She sighed and made one last turn around. Maybe I was mistaken. Her eyes went to the base of the oak and the large roots behind which the man in her vision had been lying. Frank's eyes followed her gaze, and he stepped closer to the tree to peer downward. He looked up at her, eyes wide in surprise. He's gone now, but there was somebody here, right enough. He pointed with the tines of the fork, and she stepped closer to see what he was looking at. In the small depression behind the tree, small clumps of forest grasses were crushed, and a seedling had been bent over and nearly broken off near the ground. Her mind overlaid the image of the man rolling over and tossing the small twig at the raven, and her eyes went to a sparse, broken hemlock with a single solid branch about five feet off the ground. We need to let the others know. Frank's voice carried anger and urgency. Tanith nodded absently, lost inside her mind, somewhere between madness and horror. Mom? Frank was looking at her, half turned toward the village, but unwilling to leave her standing there alone. She shook her head and smiled, if a bit tentatively. Yes, of course, Frank. Thank you for coming with me. Thank you, Mom, for being so watchful. She shrugged and shook her head again, walking ahead of Frank, stepping out into the open light of morning. They walked briskly away from the woods, but Tanis stopped in the track that led to the pike. Frank halted beside her in surprise. Mom, we need to let the others know. Let them know what, Frank? Her voice wasn't challenging, but curious. That we're being watched from the woods? Certainly. But what do we do about it? She looked around her. What can they want? Frank grimaced. Just to make trouble, I suspect. She shook her head. There has to be something more to it. They can make trouble anywhere. They know we have nothing worth their time here, so why are they still here? Well, there's still the women, Mum. He blushed when he realized what he was suggesting and to whom. She caught the embarrassed look on his face and it tickled her more than it might have in other circumstances. That's possible, but I suspect they want something more than a fast tumble. He looked at her speculatively. You have a reason for saying that, Mum. They rode off. Now they're back. Yesterday, the idea of a little strike-and-go on some defenseless women might have appealed in a kind of -of spur-of-the-moment way. She pursed her lips and leaned on her staff. That moment passed when they left and rode on. He rested the butt of the fork on the ground and cocked his head quizzically. There's some truth to that, Mum. His brow furred as he thought. But what could they want? She gave a little shrug. We have food, water, houses... They got good enough look at that yesterday to know we ain't rich here. Tanith nodded at the track that led up to the clay quarry. Except they know there's something up that trail, and they didn't get to see that yesterday. That's true enough, Mum, but if they've had a man watching the village, they must have had a chance to scout up there. 
or they will soon. Jakey and the others went up just after sunup, and our friend must have seen or heard them go. So, Mum, we can assume they'll know who, how many, and what's going on here. That's more than they knew riding in yesterday. But why'd they come back for a second look? I don't know, Frank. That's what bothers me. She eyed the wiry older man. How soon before you take the next load to town? He blinked at the sudden change of subject. Jakey and the boys say they'll be done in another couple of days. The wagon can only carry so many barrels of clay safely, and they're filling the last one tomorrow or the next day. I'll be taking the lorry wagon up there today so we can begin stacking them on. First things first. Is there an old wheel rim or barrel hoop we can hang up as an alarm bell? I suspect there's at least one up in the storeroom. He motioned with his head, and they started up the track. Three chickens scurried out of their path, clucking angrily at being disturbed in their morning scratch. Frank went around the side of the barn and under the shed roof where the ox cart usually rested. He rummaged in the weeds growing up along the foundation and pulled a half-buried metal barrel hoop out of the ground. He held it up in boyish triumph. I knew it. The rim was hardly new, but it appeared sound except for a break in its smooth curve. A small chunk of metal was missing from the ring. He lugged it out and set it beside the front of the barn while he rummaged in the tack room and brought back a long strip of leather. He held it up for Tanith to see. Busted reins. Be good to hang this on, though. He fashioned a quick loop and held the ring up by the leather strap. Whack it, Mom. She looked around for something to hit it with for a moment and then felt foolish for overlooking the staff that was already in her hand. She hit it once with the gnarled knot at the top. The resulting gong didn't seem quite as sharp as she'd have hoped. Frank screwed up his mouth in a grimace. Didn't sound much like an alarm bell, did it, Mum? She shook her head ruefully. No, I was hoping for something with a bit more clang to it. He nodded at the barn door. There's a couple iron pokers standing just inside the door there, Mum. Try one of them. She stepped into the barn and selected one of the indicated fire irons. She leaned her staff against the barn door and gripped the poker in both hands. He grinned at her and held the leather up higher to give her a good target. She drew back and gave it a single good whack. The resulting discordant clang echoed up her arms and across the valley. She grinned and saw the answering grin break across Frank's face as well. He laughed delightedly. All we need to do is hang this someplace handy. He lowered it to the ground and let it lean against his leg. Where do you think? She grimaced and thought. Not in front of the village. He frowned in concentration and turned his gaze to the line of trees behind the huts. Someplace back behind the line of houses, but maybe not as far back as the quarry track? Is there enough of an overhang to hang it off the eaves there on the back side of the last hut? She pointed to where she meant. Yep. We'll want to ask Megan and Harry if it's okay, but it looks like a good place. He took the ring over to the barn and leaned it against the building. Harry's up at the quarry now, but I'll see him in a bit when I take the wagon up. Tanith put the poker beside the ring and retrieved her staff from its resting place. I'll talk to Megan, too. She looked up at him. And thank you, Frank. I appreciate your going with me to look in the woods. You call on me any time, Mum. He shook his head in amusement. Funny things happen around you, but it ain't been half dull here since you arrived. She laughed. Thank you, I think. He tipped his head in a shortened bow and turned to head into the barn. Well, I need to harness up a couple of these critters and get that lorry wagon up the track, Mum, but holler if you need anything. I will, Frank. I will. She watched him amble into the barn and move among the shadows, speaking softly to the horses and moving deliberately around them. 
She surprised herself by noticing how nicely he filled out his jacket. She snorted softly and turned her feet toward her hut. Fool woman, got no time for that silliness. Still, it bothered her. What did they want at the village? Simple harassment didn't put food in the pot, and even bully boys needed to eat. Her thoughts chased themselves around in her head, but caught up to no conclusions. Part of it seemed logical to her. She cursed the darn foolishness the young men got themselves into all the time. The fact that they'd come back, and she couldn't figure out why, bothered her almost as much as the raven visions. The memories from the two episodes exploded in her. She'd been distracted enough to overlook the implications, but the reality of it crashed over her again between one step and the next. She had to grab her staff and stop to keep from losing her balance. She leaned heavily on it, not quite gasping for breath. She'd been able to dismiss the dream of the ravens flying. Just a dream, of course. She didn't really see the men through raven's eye. But what then of the morning? How could she have known about the spy in the wood if not for the raven? Madness. She hissed the word. Madness. Suddenly conscious as she stood in the middle of the track, she drew herself up, gathering her strength and straightening her tunic. A cup of chamomile tea would set her right. She was sure of it. With her resolve held firmly like a shield, she resumed her sedate stroll to the hut. As she entered, she studiously ignored the streak of white bird droppings on the roof. Chapter 14 After Madness Laundry the chamomile tea helped soothe her nerves, as did focusing on washing out her meager supply of clothing. She spread the wet clothes on the grass outside her back door and was able to let her mind idle on the idea that she might be going mad. You're not going mad, she said it to herself, but had difficulty accepting it in the face of her experiences. She poured a bit more hot water over the tea leaves and pulled a chair up to the hearth to sit. The exertion of laundry had warmed her body, but she still felt cold inside. The warmth of the fire and the growing warmth of the day slowly unwound her, and she sipped her tea in contemplation. Whatever was happening, it was not madness. She'd had a vision that seemed real. Twice, she reminded herself. The first could have been a dream. The second might have been as well, except she'd taken Frank and investigated only to find that the man, or somebody, had actually been there. Not madness. She said the words distinctly aloud as if to convince herself. She breathed easier. Not madness. She repeated it softly and stared into the fire. Not madness. The question of what it was instead got interrupted by the sound of feet outside her door and the whisperings of children. A timid knock sounded, followed by polite silence. She smiled and crossed to open the door. Riley stood there with several of his small chums. In their arms, they carried her clothing. Riley, what's all this? Sorry to disturb you, Mum, but we found these blowing away. She looked out and realized that what had been a calm morning had turned into a moderately breezy afternoon. She laughed and held out her hands. Thank you so much, then, for rounding these up. The children all stepped up and placed the articles of clothing soberly into her hands, as if jewels to the queen, and she had to bite back further laughter at their solemnity. When all the clothing had been delivered, what little of it there actually was, she bowed to the assembly. Thank you very kindly, 
I'll take pains to make sure it doesn't happen again. Riley stepped forward and, solemnly, held out a coil of small rope. Ma sent this over, Mum. She says you should ask any time you need help. Thank you, Riley, and thank your mother for me. This will help a great deal. You're welcome, Mum. He stood expectantly. Is there something else, Riley? Yes, Mum. We was wondering if we could help you gather herbs and stuff. His entourage stood like good little soldiers and looked hopeful, if a bit awestruck. Her eyes went to the tree line, and she considered. It wouldn't do to take the children into the forest, but perhaps there was something they could do. Yes, Riley, I think you can. There's some very valuable materials right here in the village that should be harvested and set to drying before the frosts come and destroy them. She looked from small face to small, dirty face and smiled. Would you like to help me? They all nodded happily. Excellent. Then one moment while I put away my clothes, and I'll be right out, and we can begin. She stepped down into the hut and tossed her clothing onto the cot. The gleaner's bag she'd gotten was under the bed, so she pulled it out and dumped a collection of nuts and fruit out of it onto the hearthstone. She pricked several of the chestnuts with her belt knife and slid them into the hot ash for later. She slapped her hat on her head, picked up her staff, and stepped back out into the early afternoon sun. What'll we pick, Mum? A little girl with wavy blonde hair was looking up at her with wide green eyes. Mints, I think. She leaned down to get at the little girl's level. And who are you? I'm Sandy, Mum. She announced it proudly. I'm Megan and Harry's offshoot. Tannis smiled at the gap-toothed grin looking up. Well, Sandy, let's go find some mint. Do you know what mint is? Tanith headed off to the back of the hut, where she'd already noticed that Mother Alderton had some very healthy stands of peppermint and catmint. Sandy fell in beside her on one side, and Riley, not to be outdone, took the other. The three of them led the parade of small people around the corner and into the taller plants. I do, Mum. Mint is a weed. A weed? Yes, Mum. Mama says that every time she finds a mint has jumped the fence and gotten into the garden. Get this weed out of my vegetable patch. Sandy smiled up winningly. She usually uses a bad word that I'm not allowed to say. Tanith controlled her grin with an effort. Well, mints are very robust plants. They will spread easily, and they grow very fast. Is that a good thing, Mum? Riley was feeling left out. Yes, Riley, unless you're trying to grow vegetables and the mint keeps getting in the way. He nodded sagely. Yes, Mum, I can see that. Tanith stopped in a weedy-looking patch that was so rich in mint varieties that the aroma nearly overwhelmed her. Well, here we are. The children looked disappointed, and Riley spoke up. I thought we were going to go collecting, Mum. We are. She smiled at them. And you're all going to be very helpful, I know. Sandy tugged on her pants legs. But we didn't go anywhere, Mum. Just behind your house. Tanith nodded. Yes. That's because I need to collect all this before the winter kills it. Almost all of these plants are different kinds of mints. They have different smells and different flowers and different shapes, but they all have two things in common. The children all looked up at her expectantly. She reached down and pulled a couple of leaves from a nearby plant, crushing them between her fingers before holding her hand out to the children one at a time. Smell. What do you smell? Smells green. Sandy looked up at her after almost rubbing her nose in the crushed leaves. Tanith nodded happily. Yes, it does. That's a very good description. That green smell? That's the smell of mint. All these plants have the same smell. Not exactly the same, mind you, but enough to tell it's a mint. When all the children had sniffed her hand, she smiled. And the other thing is, they all have square stems. 
The children's eyes all grew large, and they started looking at the plants around them. Tanith crouched, trimmed a stalk of gray catmint off at the base with her belt knife, and stood up again, showing them all the four-cornered cross-section of the stem. Any plant that has a square stem and smells green like that is a mint. They smell good, make nice tea, and sometimes people even make mint jelly. Sandy announced clearly, I like jelly. It's very tasty on bread. Tanith laughed. Yes, young miss, it is indeed. Riley looked about him. How much of this do we have to collect? Tanith could see him measuring and calculating how long the mint collecting might go on, and he wasn't happy with the answer. All this needs to be harvested before frost kills it. She watched his face drop before taking pity on him. But we'll only gather a few stalks to set to dry today. We can get more tomorrow. That announcement cheered them greatly. She took off the gleaner's bag and handed it to Sandy. If you'd hold that for me, Sandy. She nodded solemnly. Just hold the top open so everybody can put the stalks of mint into it. She turned to the half-dozen children around her. I'll cut. You each take a bundle and put it into the bag that Sandy's holding. Cut end down. Leafy end up. Understood? They nodded, but not very convincingly. Good. She got down on her knees in the drying soil, pulled her belt knife once more. She collected a handful of mint stalks, used the knife to slice them off just above ground level, and passed the handful to the nearest child. She grabbed the next handful and repeated the process. She collected like types together, collecting several handfuls of common green peppermint before moving on to collect a large bundle of gray-leaved cat mint. The more she cut, the more she identified, and the more she came to admire Mother Alterton's work in getting all these mints in one place. It worked for almost a whole hour before the children became bored with the process. On the plus side, they'd nearly filled the gleaner's bag with various mints, from a common green mint to a pungent peppermint and a musky gray-leaved cat mint. There was even some lavender mint, not the woody lavender ground cover, but a mint that carried some of the same oils and aromas that the woody lavender had. She called a halt to the gathering, thanked the children lavishly for their aid, and dismissed them with a wave before clambering ponderously to her feet. Her knees didn't want to unbend, and she groaned quietly as the circulation took a more vertical path. She hefted the gleaner's bag onto her shoulder. The bag weighed more than she expected, and she realized that it was probably a good thing that they'd stopped. She needed to bind and hang the freshly cut stems for drying, and that much plant matter would take a bit of time to sort and bind properly. She hobbled across the short distance to her back door, hips and knees letting her know that the next time she should have the shorter members of her gathering crew kneel on the ground. A few items of small clothes had not blown away earlier, so she collected those and took the whole lot into the hut. As she lowered herself gingerly down the steps, she was surprised to realize that she felt renewed. Breathing the fresh scents of earth and plant, feeling the sun on her back and the breeze in her face had given her new spirit, new strength after two terrifying days. The boyos were still looking in the undergrowth, and there was still the curious relationship with the ravens, but she felt like these were somehow more manageable. She smiled to herself. Being with the children for the afternoon didn't hurt either. They were so young, so earnest. Riley reminded her a bit of her own Robert as a small boy, all sturdy leg and nut-brown summertime skin. She sighed, half in regret, but half in contentment as well. Inside the hut, she stoked up the fire and cleared the table so she had room to work. With front and back doors open, the day's light provided all the illumination she needed, and indeed it felt good to get out of the direct sun. The heat of the day still carried weight, 
even so close to the equinox. Mother Alderton had left a ball of string on her shelves, and Tanith used the rough twine to bind the stalks of mint together, twining the stems and string in a way that left them collected together neatly without being crushed. As her fingers worked the string and stalks, her mind gnawed at the problem of the riders. As terrifying as the dream episodes had been, she found herself wondering if she could use them to find the men and see what they were doing to see if they were still out there somewhere, ready to make trouble. She used her broom to lift the bundles up to the iron nails driven into the rafters where only a few days before she and Amber had pulled down the old and musty crop of dried materials. It didn't seem possible to her that so much had happened in so short a time. With the last of the cuttings bound and hung, the hut took on the pungent aroma of fresh mint. Tanith found it quite relaxing and a pleasant change from the neutral and slightly dusty aromas of ash and grass that had permeated the hut. She took a deep breath and thought again of the raven. She closed the doors, casting the interior into near darkness except for a cheery flame in the hearth. She crossed to the cot and folded up her small clothes, storing them in her pack once more, feeling satisfied that she'd have fresh clothes on the morrow. With the bedroll cleared, she stretched out and deliberately closed her eyes, thinking of ravens and the boyos, and willing herself to see what the men were up to. In moments, she fell asleep. After what seemed like only a few minutes, she woke again. The light had shifted to late afternoon, and her fire had burned down to a few embers. She felt quite rested, but slightly disappointed that she'd not been able to contact the ravens and that she didn't know what the men might be up to or even if they were still there. She rose, sighing, and used the poker to pull the roasted chestnuts out of the hot ash before poking up the coals and adding a couple of fresh sticks. Her wood box was getting a bit empty, and filling her tea kettle almost emptied the water bucket. She wondered if she could impose on young Riley to refill one or the other for her. You're getting lazy in your dotage, old woman. She scolded herself good-naturedly. But she had to admit, having somebody to take care of those two particular chores made life much more pleasant. Thanks for listening to Ravenwood, a Tanith Fairport adventure. Music is The Hill, composed and produced by Ivan Chu. Find this and other works by Ivan Chu at www.archive.org. You can learn more about the composer and his works by visiting his blog at myrightbrain.wordpress.com. This has been a presentation from Dorandis, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution No Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 U.S. License. For more information on Tanith Fairport and stories from the Lamas Wood, visit www.lamaswood.com. <laughs> <laughs>